I've heard of a Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. And I wondered what that means and just why is it a curse? And I think that we live in interesting times. And what we see around us is the tumultuous uh, and uncontrollable forces at play in the world today. They're just transformative uh, political, economic, social, religious, spiritual, personal, cultural uh, forces that have just been unleashed to such an extraordinary degree that we all are buffeted and the course of our life is actually quite unpredictable. And I think that the security of pleasure as opposed to pain, the security of gain uh, as opposed to loss, and the other vicissitudes of life are just uh, at loose. And while we all wish for pleasant experience in life, we'd all like to be recognized, we'd all like to have a life of abundance, we'd all like to have pleasure, we'd all like to have uh, recognition, and we do what we can to secure them, we can't avoid the unpleasant. We can't avoid loss. We can't avoid struggle. We can't avoid being challenged. We can't avoid uh, being on the unpleasant end of all these forces. And each one of us know that. We know that life is insecure. But we also know that everyone experiences all of these forces. Everyone is equally uh, moved by these forces. And even though we understand that, that understanding does not inoculate us from suffering when the unpleasant forces of life have their day with us. George Dreyfus, a uh, translator in the Tibetan tradition, says, happiness is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill, but it is a sense of well-being To free oneself from the curse, each one of us must cultivate the qualities of heart to withstand the inevitable unpleasant experiences of life. They're inevitable. The development of what are called the paramis, the forces of purity in our heart, and the development of them to a stable presence in our life are contingency plans for the inevitable. Think for a moment, just reflect on someone you know who you really consider to be 
a good human being. And it might be a personal friend who is just there for you, kind, considerate, understanding, patient, generous. Or you can think of historical figures like Gandhi in his commitment to the truth, Mother Teresa in her tremendous life of compassion, um, Nelson Mandela with his extraordinary patience for so many years in prison. And they're just innumerable uh, human examples of extraordinary strength of character. The qualities that these people display or the qualities that these people have perfected or any one of them are what we recognize as good human qualities. And when the mind is purified of self-absorption, self-aggrandizement, self-centeredness, and really comes from a place of generosity and understanding and compassion, when the mind is purified and comes from these places, we recognize anyone as being someone we'd like to know. In this tradition of practice, or in this tradition of the Buddhist teachings, the Theravada tradition, these are the qualities of the awakened mind. There are ten of them. There are ten paramis. Ten qualities of the awakened mind. There are ten. They are forces of purity in the mind. Forces of purity in our heart. I want to mention them. Generosity, the sharing of what we have, morality, attempting to speak and act in ways that do not harm oneself or others, renunciation, letting go of all kinds of things, wisdom and understanding, the energy to accomplish one's goals, patience, truthfulness, resoluteness, steadfastness. Loving-kindness and equanimity. It is said that the Bodhisattva, the being who became the Buddha, became a Buddha through perfecting these qualities. What that means is, throughout the innumerable lifetimes that this being's stream of consciousness was moving on, It took form in all the planes of existence in the most trying, challenging situations in order to strengthen these states of mind, these qualities of mind, qualities of heart. And in time, they became the default setting of the mind, meaning it was the first response of the mind to any situation to be generous, to be understanding, to be patient, to be truthful, to be resolute, to be energetic, to be balanced. So that no matter how challenging or how demanding or how tumultuous or how interesting 
the times were. These were the qualities of mind that first arose as a response to the conditions of life. While we recognize these qualities as being extraordinary human qualities, developed to an extraordinary degree in some humans, we also recognize that they're not absent from our mind, our heart. We all have the potential to be kind, to be generous, to be understanding, to be patient, to be generous, to be truthful. But while we recognize the potential and we recognize sometimes we may display these qualities, we, re we, we, we realize with any self-honesty that there's room for improvement. When we know of the potential, when we hear of the possibility of further development, and we acquire the skillful means to do that, and we undertake the practice, we can be sure, we can be confident that we can grow in becoming a better human being, becoming a really worthy, noble, uh, beneficial human being. But it means that the deeply rooted habits of self absorption, self-centeredness, self-interest first. Those habits need to be seen, need to be confronted, need to be overcome and eventually uprooted from the mind. When we look at them, generosity, truthfulness, energy, non-reactivity, understanding, there's nothing particularly Buddhist about them. And they're, they're certainly not very esoteric. They're not even, you know, subtle. They're rather mundane. They're rather ordinary. They're recognized worldwide by ordinary, salt-of-the-earth folks as good. Probably equally recognized by all spiritual and cultural traditions as values to be uh, observed, values to be uh, appreciated, and values that are cultivated in all religions and spiritual traditions. So while these paramis are a potential within us, they don't automatically grow without our personal involvement, without a personal decision on our part to value them and to not only take the opportunity to develop them, but make the opportunity to develop them. Not only to respond with these states of mind, but to proactively seek expressing these states of mind. The way to do that is none other than to, well, to remember that any of these states of mind are an option. 
Remembering is the function of mindfulness. These are all mindfulness practices. They're all things that we can do every day. Is there ever a day goes by you don't have the opportunity to practice patience? Or you don't have the opportunity to practice generosity? Or just understanding? But so often we resort to defensiveness, demandingness, arrogance, you know, my way or the other way, and we don't take the opportunity. To make these mindfulness practices a personal choice will require that we see our cultural family conditioning. And you can't grow up in any culture without being conditioned by that culture, that religion, that political system, that family structure. And so we all have conditioning. It is our responsibility as someone interested in freeing the mind from suffering and limitation to look at that, to look at this conditioning and to really see what of our conditioning supports liberation and what of our conditioning really isn't an expression of the free mind. I'm sure you've all walked down the street of any city, probably where you live, and you've seen, well, the people who claim to be homeless, vets, jobless, panhandlers. I have conditioning. I have beliefs. I have thoughts. I have judgments about those people. And I see it arise in my mind. I see it. And, well, I don't believe it. I can question, I can doubt, I can say, no, I won't give you the money, but I will buy you a burger. But that's my trip. Here's someone offering me the opportunity to be generous. It's my choice. That's it. No matter what they do with it, that's not my, that's not my problem. My beliefs about that can be the problem. And so I now realize that the issue in that moment of seeing that person is just, do I take the opportunity to practice generosity or not? That's the issue. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And when I don't, I really wonder, I really look at, well, why not? What is, you know what, there isn't any one of us in this room that can't afford a dollar a day for somebody on the street, or five dollars, or probably more. That's not, it's not that we don't have the means. It's our conditioning. It's our belief system. It's our projections. It's our, you know, what we have been taught to value. And our cultural family conditions may not be adequate for liberation. 
That's something we have to see. That's something we have to practice. But rather than beat ourselves up by not taking every opportunity to develop all of these uh, qualities of mind, we need to be uh, honest with ourselves. Sometimes we just can't. And we can recognize it as a limitation. We can recognize it as a present limit. That's just it. I just, this is as far as I can go. This is as truthful as I can be. This is as, you know, as much loving kindness as I can have for this person at this time or whatever. And to, to accept that this is, this is the limitation. This is the limits of our perfection, so to speak. And not to belittle ourselves and not to kind of fix ourselves at that place for all time. Just recognize, well, this is, this is the challenge. This is how difficult it is. This is how demanding it is. Walking our talk, while we all may prefer, we may all value generosity and truthfulness, we may not be able to walk our talk. We have to have the courage to recognize that within ourselves, and to know that that's not a cat, you know, carved in stone determination. That too is subject to change if we practice. While the paramis are a potential that can be developed through personal choice and remembering mindfulness, they're a practice. And just like mindfulness practice here on the cushion, it takes instruction, it takes practice, it takes monitoring that practice, reviewing the practice, seeing what works, and seeing what doesn't, and making some adjustments. We do that in our sitting practice on an ongoing basis. We're sitting, we're trying the instructions, we're seeing what works, what doesn't work, and some things work one day and they don't work the next day, and we gradually get more refined understanding and are able to apply the instructions in a more consistent, refined, pragmatic, beneficial way. The same with these paramis. We can expect to practice any of them successfully from the get-go. And when I say to practice successfully, I mean these are all happiness practices. Can we practice generosity and loving kindness and patience and be happy? You know, resentful patience is not happiness. <laughs> I can be patient, mm. not practicing well. There's something to learn there. And so, you know, when we're practicing mindfulness, we will see are we really able to be happy with this practice. Happy both now in the immediate opportunity and happiness later upon reflection. This will give you a real feedback as to how you're doing. We can learn from our uh, mistakes. We can learn from our limitations. We can learn from our attempts to practice and to be happy with our practice. They're all practices 
of mindfulness. Cultivating awareness, recognizing the potential or the, the, the possibility when it's presented, and also proactively seeking out opportunities to express these qualities of mind. There are also practices of the Noble Eightfold Path. As we've mentioned a couple of times in this retreat, you know, the Buddha taught, you know, the Four Noble Truths. And the fourth Noble Truth is that the path to the end of suffering, the end of all forms of stress, distress, suffering of any kind, is to let go. It is this Noble Eightfold Path of three trainings, eight, eight factors, And all of these paramis are practices within the Eightfold Path. They're all mindfulness practices. They're all practices of letting go, of renunciation. The second noble truth says that this dukkha, this suffering, this stress, this pain, this vulnerability, insecurity, is caused by clinging, hanging on to something, many things. If hanging on is the cause of suffering, Letting go is the cause of the end of suffering. Renunciation. All of these practices are renunciation practices. In Burma, where we've practiced and where this tradition of um, meditation really comes from, the understanding is that householders like ourselves Householders' daily practice is the practice of the paramis. And for eight or nine or ten months a year, doing their family, social, civic responsibilities, they try to cultivate these qualities of mind. Understanding that to the degree that these qualities of mind are mature in the heart, it provides the foundation for liberation through insight. And so they go to the retreat, go to the meditation center for a month or two a year, practicing meditation as we've been doing here, intensively, in order to see what degree of liberation their paramis support. And a lifetime of you know, 10 months a year of parami practice and two months a year of insight practice. And you should just do that year after year after year after year. You grow. You really grow in capacity. You grow in both all of the human, good human qualities and you grow in the degree of liberation of your mind. I was recently at a retreat and one yogi was saying, I want a life of awareness. I don't want a lifestyle of retreating. And I think that's, there's something important being said there. While retreating and doing retreats is tremendously beneficial, and I'm glad that people do it, uh, it is sometimes used 
as Dharma binging. You know, you kind of blow it off for six months and then you get a little, like, uh, whatever the feeling is, you say, I, I need to go get some Dharma. Go do your Dharma thing for a week or nine days. Whew, okay, go binge on Dharma, blow it off for six months. Go binge on Dharma. Not going to be sufficient. Interesting, exciting, wow, but not the mature, steady development of the qualities that allow liberation of the heart. What makes these qualities, when practiced, a parami practice, a parami being a force of purity and a force of perfection. What makes them a force for perfection is our motivation. We can practice any of these for our own benefit. Practice generosity. You know what? The best way, the easiest way, the quickest way to feel good today, practice generosity. Immediate. Even if you just give a dog a bone, they will love you. <laughs> feel great. That's good. But it's when we are able to practice any or all of these qualities of heart with the understanding and hope or aspiration that they benefit all beings in some way. Even through development within our own heart, it affects everyone. If we understand that and are motivated to practice these paramis coming from a place of may this be a cause, a condition for all beings to be free of need, free of suffering, free of distress, liberated in their own way. Then, it, then they become a, a noble uh, parami practice. When I say all of these uh, practices, all of these qualities are practices of the Noble Eightfold Path, and our practices of letting go. I want to explain that a little bit. Generosity is obviously a practice of letting go of, well, stuff, sometimes. But really, learning how to practice generosity is learning how to let go of your greed, how to let go of your attachment to things, to beliefs, to opinions, to a sense of self. This is me and to let go of that. This is the Eightfold Path Factor of right action. To practice morality, to practice sila as we've been doing here, to practice the precepts in order to live in harmony, not causing harm to others. Path factors of right speech, right action, right livelihood. Letting go of acting out habits that cause harm letting go of delusion, letting go of self-centeredness, letting go of self-aggrandizing, uh, self-inflating behaviors. Renunciation, of course, is the practice of letting go. Letting go of material things, behaviors, habits, views and opinions, sense of self. Ultimately, letting go of the known, accessing the unconditioned, right thought.
This is the path factor of right thought. Bringing the thought of letting go, renunciation, into the mind. Wisdom is, again, the path factors of right view. Wisdom is seeing things correctly. And right thought, having the intention to express or act on them. It is letting go of delusion, letting go of confusion, letting go of wrong understanding, letting go of naivete. We know more than we're often willing to admit or that we're willing to act on. We may need to let go of that naivete, that, oh, I don't know, I didn't know. We do know. And to really look within our own heart to see what it is we know that we're not yet capable of acknowledging to ourselves, to others, and to act on. That's wisdom. Energy is the path factor of right effort. It's letting go of laziness, letting go of sloth, inertia, letting go of procrastination. Why do we put things off? I don't know if you've noticed it, but worrying about, thinking about, dreading doing something is always much worse than just doing it. Why don't we just do it? Why do we put it off? Well, laziness. It's just kind of low energy. You know, oh, not now, later. And it takes energy just to do that, just to put it off, let alone to... We need to... In, in paying attention to the practice of, of uh, right energy, we'll see. When are we really using our energy wisely? When and pay attention to it. When are we just dissipating our energy? Patience, of course, is the path factor of sila, right action, right speech, right, right um, intention, really. It is letting go of impatience, obviously, letting go of insistence on doing things my way, and letting go of demanding what we expect from others. I mean, we stop, stop and think, just really, really look at and notice the next time you're impatient. It's often because we want somebody to perform for us. And they're not. They're not doing it our way, or fast enough, or something. Can we let go of our demands on others? This is patient. Truthfulness is, of course, the path factor of right speech. It is letting go of uh, truthlessness, letting go of deception, letting go of delusion, denial. Resolve, or determination, resoluteness, is, of course, the path factors of right speech, right view, right thought, right action. It's letting go of being dissipated. In our times, that's multitasking. Doing so much at one time, we don't do anything very well. And we don't have the stamina, the steadfastness to see things through. Lots of beginnings, few endings. Because being irresolute, just not kind of truly committed to finish what we begin. Resolution. Loving kindness, of course, is the path factor of right thought, having loving thoughts. Letting go of aversion, hatred, judgment, impatience. And equanimity is also right view, having the right view of events, things, people, 
and not being caught or letting go of reactivity, letting go of um, passivity. Being equanimous is not about being passive or being disconnected. It's about being engaged and watching the tendency to react and not getting caught in reactivity, liking or disliking, and not getting caught in passivity, kind of pushing away or cutting off from, but staying engaged. Equanimity is also letting go of dramatizing ordinary events. Listen to yourself sometime. Talk to others, tell others about your experience. And notice, or just notice among others, how common it is to dramatize very ordinary things. Making a big ado about nothing special. Why do we do that? Why do other people do that? Why do we uh, get seduced by that in the news, in the media, in... It's ordinary for people to get sick. I mean, this is natural. It's natural for people to have difficulties or whatever. We don't need to dramatize it. The dramatizing is an imbalanced out-of-balance reactivity to events. In this way, we can see that all of the paramis are, are practices of letting go. And the Buddha said, if by renouncing a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness that is greater, the wise will pursue that happiness which is greater. If we can let go of any of these things, which might bring us a temporary happiness, relief, security. For a happiness that's greater, think liberation. The wise choose the happiness which is greater. Many of these um, qualities of heart, the paramis, are uh, mentioned a lot in Dharma practices. Metta, loving kindness, this whole whole courses on metta, and wisdom is talked about extensively. Generosity is usually mentioned, sometimes extensively. The one that I like to uh, highlight, and I want to highlight tonight, is one that doesn't get a lot of airtime, and that is what's called aditana parami. Aditana means resolve, resoluteness, steadfastness. I mentioned the Bodhisattva. Now the Bodhisattva is the one, the being who is to become, destined to become a Buddha. But this being became a Bodhisattva, well, the story goes like this. Many, a long time ago, once upon a time, <laughs> eons and eons, life cycles, just hundreds of whatevers ago, there was an ascetic named Sumedha living in what is now present-day India, who had developed his heart and mind extensively to the point where if he'd heard a single word of teaching from a Buddha, he would have become fully enlightened. He was ripe. 
One day in his, on his alms round in town, he noticed a lot of uh, commotion and hubbub, inquired what was going on, found out that the Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was coming to town, wanting to see the Buddha. He stood by the side of the road, prepared a section of the road or pathway for the Buddha. And when Dipankara Buddha came into view, the ascetic Sumedha marveled at his nobility and his bearing and his demeanor and he made a vow. I'd like to become a Buddha someday. Now you got to remember he had a very pure mind to begin with. I'd like to become a Buddha someday so that I too might be able to uh, offer the teachings of liberation to all beings. Well, the Dipankara Buddha with his Buddha mind was able to kind of scope it out and say, hmm, okay, that guy just made an aspiration to become Buddha, let me see. He did a quick check of his uh, kind of karmic profile <laughs> and, and realized, indeed, this ascetic would one day become a Buddha. And so he confirmed, he acknowledged to this ascetic that one day he would become a Buddha. Upon, at that time, that ascetic became a bodhisattva, made the aspiration, had it confirmed by a living Buddha. Now, the job was perfect the paramis to an extraordinary degree, not just enough to get enlightened, but enough to become a Buddha. It's like quantum leap. So for hundreds of lifetimes, this ascetic took birth in all the planes of existence, as I mentioned, in the most trying situations in order to become a Buddha, develop, strengthen these qualities of mind. 2,500 years ago, born as Prince Siddhartha in India, 29 years in the palace, six years ascetic, finally, on the night of his eventual liberation, made the resolve, the resolve. I'm going to sit here until I become fully enlightened. Of course, he had a pretty good idea that it was going to happen that night, thank goodness. <laughs> It, so it said. And indeed, through that resolve, became the Buddha of our time, Gautama Buddha. What motivated him through all of these lifetimes of very difficult and challenging conditions? Resolve. Resolve. It was just the steadfastness of the mind moving in that direction, towards Buddhahood. Making a spiritual aspiration like that is not easy. But we all have some spiritual aspiration. And this is an invitation to, to try to articulate that try to articulate for yourself what, given the best of conditions, is your spiritual aspiration. Given enough time and resolve, no one can stop you. Think about that. Whatever it is you want for this heart, no one can stop you.
These are the four resolves, the Buddha said. The resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom, should preserve the truth, should cultivate generosity, and should train in peace. These are the four resolves. Struggling, striving, grasping, ambition is not resolve. That's, we could call it wrong resolve. It looks like resolve, determination, but because there's this grasping for personal aggrandizement, personal recognition, wrong. That's not resolve, that's just pure and utter attachment. Unwise resolution or unwise aditama, aditana is obstinate, prejudiced, biased, inflexible, bullheaded, willful, forceful, and grim. Which, of course, we've all been caught in it sometime or another. You know, I know I've tried to endure. Mm, wrong resolve. And so practicing resolve is a practice. How to learn from steadfastness, our practice of steadfastness. Being resolute, being determined, being steadfast, and not getting caught in grimness and striving. And it takes practice. It's really a very nuanced state of mind that we're working with. And it's not only resolved to attain your spiritual liberation. It's like, you want to bake bread? You need resolve. You need to have some steadfastness for the duration of the time it takes to bake bread, or write a book, or raise a kid, or whatever. It takes some level of resolve. Now, what prevents firm resolve? What prevents us making this bold declaration like the ascetic Sumedha? This is what I aspire to. Sometimes resolve is contaminated by doubt, by indecision, where we waver, wander, meander, we feel perplexed, we're hesitant, where we try many things and continue or succeed or, or finish very few. Where our confidence is weak and we're not assured whether this is really my way or that way. I was reminded by Rodney Rodney Smith who teaches in Seattle several years ago now that when I first came on staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, he was on staff. We were both working in the maintenance department. In one of my first days um, on staff there, we were up in the attic of one of the dormitories insulating the attic. And by that time I had done one two-week retreat. And, <laughs> and I said to Rodney in the course of this discussion, I have absolutely no doubt that in this lifetime I will realize the Dharma. I had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> I had no idea how difficult it was or, or what was involved. But I was able to, and reflecting on it now I realize, I was able to make that statement because I was clear of the direction I wanted to go. I had no doubt. Rodney was Rodney 
told me a few years ago. He was blown away. He couldn't believe that I was saying that. Of course, I was lucky I didn't know what I was saying. But nevertheless, we can have strong resolve even without knowing all the obstacles we'll meet or how we'll overcome them. We can be that. This is the direction I'm going. Whatever is in the, on the path, I will deal with when I get there. That's confidence. Not that you never feel lack of confidence. We do. But still, if we can remember mindfulness, our resolve, steadfastness, we'll keep going in that direction. Sometimes our resolve is contaminated by laziness, where we just don't have the energy. We have no power behind our resolve. It's more, our resolve is then more like, oh, that's a good idea. But we really don't have any oomph behind it, where the heaviness of our mind and our habits predominates. And there's no fire to burn up the obstacles that we face. Let's acknowledge the obvious. Obstacles are inevitable. We are all going to meet difficulties and challenges, obstacles that are going to appear to block our way, whether it's getting a job, raising a child, writing a book, or fulfilling your spiritual aspiration. Know that. Be prepared for that. And still make the resolve. Trungpa Rinpoche, a great teacher from the last century, said about Dharma practice, if we knew what would be involved, it would have been better if we'd never started. But since we've started, it would be better that we finish. Energy is, is said to be the topic that the Buddha spoke most about in his 45 years of teaching. The energy to overcome inertia, laziness, irresoluteness. Deepama, which, whom many of you have heard about, the uh, Indian woman that was one of our teachers, I think she died in about 88, uh, extraordinary yogi, just extraordinary uh, concentration, extraordinary insight, quick, and just had a powerful, powerful mind. On her last trip, I think it was her last trip to the States, uh, she was speaking to Joseph Goldstein about practice. And she's very loving. And that was her primary quality, she's just so soft and so loving and just blessing people all the time. She said to Joseph, <clears throat> you should sit for three days. And she didn't mean do a three-day retreat. She meant sit down, three days later, get up. Because she could do that. And she did that, fully mindful, fully present there. Joseph said, he just burst out laughing when she said that. And she said, don't be lazy. <laughs> like that's not all that's required, I think. But nevertheless, I mean, it's even hard to even think about. I mean, and Joseph still blows it off like, well, that's just totally ridiculous, out of the question. Nevertheless, 
even without that degree of uh, challenge, don't be lazy. Whatever it is, I mean, sometimes it's just sit for 20 minutes, get out of bed earlier, 20 minutes earlier, don't be lazy. Not for three days, just 20 minutes. <laughs> sometimes, our, sometimes our resolve is contaminated by attachment or ambition or self-assertion. Sometimes we're just in a hurry. We want more than we are developed to receive. We get arrogant. You know, we, have, we live in a drive-by society. You know, you want something, drive by. Put your order in at the speaker and, you know, get it at the pay, the pay deck or whatever it is. It's not that way. Spiritual practice and many worthy, noble accomplishments in life just don't happen that way. And so if we're attached to being in a hurry or if we're attached to our sense of ourself accomplishing, getting, having, becoming, we'll be wavering in our resolve. When I talk about resolve, aditana, actually there is a mental muscle called aditana. Just like there's a mental muscle called attachment, which we've cultivated and made pretty strong love or loving kindness, which we practice and it's also very strong at times. Uh, anger, sometimes really well developed. There's this mental muscle of aditana, resolve. It is a quality of mind to be developed. Well, when I was practicing in Burma with Sadhu Bandita, and I was doing uh, jhana practice, the loving kindness and compassion, the Brahma Viharas, at a certain point in my practice, he started to train me in developing resolve. And essentially what it means is you, you, you plant the seed of something in your mind, may I X, Y, Z. And then you just practice, you do your ordinary practice until you realize or attain what you resolved. You don't do anything particular about that resolve, you just plant the seed in your mind and then let the purity of the mind manifest it, bring it forth. So I was going along doing this and, you know, eventually you get familiar with what, how to work with resolve and how to recognize it in the mind. And one day I went in and I was giving him my report, and he said, okay, now I want you to do this resolve. And he asked me to do something like it, like Tipama, you know, and, and I just burst out laughing. I said, well, I don't even believe that's possible. And he said, you don't have to. You don't have to believe it's possible. Just make the resolve. So I said, I mean, I, I was so uh, sure that it was ridiculous for me to even try, but he was my teacher. Whatever he said, I would try, I would do. So I went back to my room and I said, okay, you know, may my mind X, Y, Z. Instantly, my mind did it. And I was like blown away. I could not believe how that was possible. I didn't believe it was possible. And, and yet, there it was. It was a powerful lesson to me in how if you develop mental muscles, 
they are often more powerful than you know. Just like our own physical body. You know, we go to the club, we work out, we do 20 reps of this and 10 reps of that and, you know, strengthen this and strengthen that. When the time comes to lift that sack of potatoes, or whatever it is that you have to do in the real world with those muscles, you can do it. Same with spiritual training, developing mental muscles. You do the exercises, you just do so many reps. And then when the time comes to ask your mind to make this extraordinary resolve, it can do it. This quality or any of these mental muscles are impersonal. They can be trained. It's not yours, but you're responsible for it. You can train in developing these mental muscles. Sometimes our resolve, resoluteness, is contaminated by aversion of one sort or another. A big one being fear of failure. We fear failure. We don't want to be seen as a failure. We don't want to be, we don't want to disappoint ourselves. We don't want to disappoint others. We don't want others to see us as incompetent or unable to accomplish, to achieve, to do what we say. Or and so we, we, we pull back. We pull back from what we can do. We waver out of fear failure. Anger, sometimes when meeting or facing very obstinate, difficult obstacles in our path, we waver, we get angry, we get irritated. And this too undermines our resoluteness. Or we get frustrated by our current limitation. Not yet capable of doing it, we get frustrated. This too undermines our determination. Sometimes, as I said, you know, we, we take on a, an aspiration, we take on a, 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 something to do, and we don't know what's involved, and yet, really, we should understand that aspiration is not so much getting done what we aspire to do. It's keeping moving in that direction. You know, uh, the space shuttle. I've told this at every retreat I've done for years. You know the space shuttle? They send up there to the space station. You know, they send it off from Florida somewhere and on board are the onboard computers. It says, you know, you know, go left for a couple miles, go right for a little bit, take your pedal, take your foot off the pedal, go straight, you know, whatever. And eventually, after two or three days, it arrives at the space station. Well, the space shuttle is off course 97% of the time. It's not headed in the right direction, 97% of the time. But because of innumerable mid-course corrections, it still arrives at where it's supposed to go. Our practice is a lot like that. <laughs> We're heading towards mindfulness, you know, or awakening, or patience, or generosity. We're off course. 97% of the time. But because we recognize that we're off course and we make an adjustment, we come back headed in the right direction momentarily. And that's, what, that's what's required, is just recognizing when we're off course. 
making an adjustment, coming back to the direction of our aspiration. When we're able to really work with resolve, clarify our aspiration, work at making the mid-course corrections, and really have a steadfastness in the direction we're moving, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of balance. There's a lot of acceptance that this is the way it is, and a willingness to meet and face anything that arises joyfully. Joy is a quality of mind that comes from being, being present, even with painful or difficult things. Joy is a quality of mind that arises when the mind can do its work of knowing unhindered. When there's, we're able to put aside frustration and attachment, restlessness and sleepiness and doubt, even if what we're experiencing is painful, the mind is joyful. It sounds impossible, it sounds paradoxical, it sounds, and yet, it's my experience that when the mind is really on fire and is aware without being hindered, everything is a joy, everything. Years ago, when I was first practicing around the center in Massachusetts, Jack Cornfield used to tell a story about this Chinese monk in China who undertook a practice for 10 years at a time. He'd do metta for 10 years, do insight for 10 years, do devotional practice for 10 years, do another practice for 10 years. Practice like that until he was 80. A few practices. Then he began teaching and he taught until he was 120. He called his teaching the development of the long enduring mind. The journey we're on, the, this journey of awakening, is a long journey. And to develop the mind that can endure this journey requires steadfastness. It's our practice. If we value our aspiration, if we make it a personal choice, if we practice fulfilling the conditions of our aspiration, it'll happen. It'll happen. Even on this retreat, seven days, you can see how much your awareness has grown, how much your steadiness, your concentration has stabilized, how much you've been able to put aside the hindrances for periods of time. And this is just seven days. Imagine the rest of your lifetime. And I know some of us are getting up there. 
And we don't know, and none of us know how much lifetime we have left. But if you can see this amount in seven days, add seven weeks, add seven months, add seven years. It's not beyond the possible. As the Buddha said, if it were not possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. But it is possible through resolve, through energy, through development of all the paramis. We have this tremendous potential within us. It's just, just beyond our capacity to imagine. All of us. It's not, it's not your personal limitation. The mind has this capacity that we've just not yet realized. And we are our only obstacle. Anything is possible. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.